production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Nico Plowman is a Vedic meditation teacher and owner of the Insight Timer meditation app. He insists on holding a deeper appreciation for how our inner worlds influence our outer worlds. He explores the art of stillness and shares what he and others are learning about the space between thoughts and how our brains take care of our bodies. Nico defines quiet as presence, not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. What follows is a conversation about battling your inner demons, being reborn in the same life, and how in stillness the true presence of our nature is revealed. It is only our capacity and increasing knowingness for this deep foundation of broad conscious experience and a remembering of who we truly are that we will keep walking down that path because it becomes fundamental to how you live and how you feel and what your purpose is to keep going because you now know by that stage that this is the real truth of who you were and how it was that you arrived. And so we are seeking charm fearlessly. There is nothing about a liberated life that we will start to be fearful of because it's like if you start worrying what everyone's going to think, you dim your life. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Nico Plowman's wisdom both embodies and inspires in a world in which his voice and vision feel as resonant as ever before. I really enjoyed spending a couple of very insightful hours with Nico. I appreciate his voice, guidance and vulnerability. May his words equally move you towards a path of inner peace. Nico Plowman, I always find it extremely interesting when I interview meditation teachers and how they got to this space. What was your life like pre-meditation and what led you to this field? Sarah, I have been practicing Vedic meditation, which is spelled V-E-D-I-C for 10 years now. And for the 10 years before that, I was trying different types of meditation, but my life was extremely different. I'm now 49, so all of my 30s, I was building a business and it was a software company and it was in the wagering industry. I spent a lot of time in Melbourne and I was running a lifestyle that was pretty fast, traveling a lot, partying a lot. I had children when I was 32. I was married a year before that. My wife at the time, Heidi, she had a substantial business herself. So it was a very busy, very demanding lifestyle. And I think outwardly it all looked fantastic. It had all the shiny bits. It had the airplanes and the holidays and it had everything. But fundamentally, I think it wasn't sustainable. But I knew through my 30s for a bunch of things that happened including even even a couple of health things that happened sort of early 30s, that there was something else and I would go off and practice some sort of meditation technique. But nothing was sustainable. But when I look back on it now, the way that I was living was ultimately one where I wasn't happy with what I was doing. I had essentially purpose that was... I had no purpose, I don't think, realistically. But, you know, I was a father and a husband and there were a lot of wonderful things about it. But how was my life then completely different? In an industry that was completely unfulfilling, doing something that really didn't mean much and escaping those demands through alcohol, drugs, all types and an idea that somehow my external experience would ultimately lead me to feel some level of fulfilment, but it just wasn't going to be the way. So I tried other things, but I was very good at going off to beautiful places for 10 days and feeling fantastic and eating very well and deciding that I was never going to 
have a drink again and I always joke that I'd go to a place up in Queensland called Wingana and jump around at 3 o'clock in the morning in the rain with no clothes on and see see the light and then not long later I'd be sitting down at lunch on Sydney Harbour, you know, at, on Friday having forgotten about all that. I was very good at, do, at doing the extremes. It was an extreme lifestyle actually. So Sarah... It was all of those things. It was all very much relative acquisition for satisfaction. Wasn't going to get there. And then I learned a technique that I now teach called Vedic meditation. And that was the start of a substantial, you know, real, I mean, substantial 180. Do you remember a point when you were burning the candle at both ends and living that lifestyle quite differently to what you live now, where you thought there is something in me that doesn't feel right? Maybe it sounds like you lived quite lavishly. And you you did realise those external things weren't satisfying you. But I feel a lot of people struggle to get to that. They believe that those things always will and they're chasing and chasing and then it becomes the bigger thing and the bigger thing and the bigger thing, but they, they just can't find it. You know, this is not something which, this is the theme that I think people might come back to, but we often say that everyone has to do their research. Right. Yeah. And and that's research essentially in the relative and regardless of how you decide to do that research, you know, is it that you need to research at the bottom of a bottle or the bottom of a bag of cocaine or in prescription medication or all of the above or is it in being a holic of some description that includes workaholic, you know, and and what we would do on the basis that even if we know that meditation was, you know, was a catalyst for change, it's that we still have to recognise that everyone is only doing research and it's in the research and actual fact that the shift can be so substantial because the yes, pressure just yes. builds. And it's like, well, and I think what I can now see back on, even up to the moment where I walked through the door to meet the person who taught me to meditate, and at that time there was an enormous amount of things going on. At the time I truly thought it may have been the most demanding or stressful time you know, of my adult life. And... I don't think even up to the moment where then I started meditating that I even knew that 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 it was time for a change. It was just, hey, there's some research going on here, something very, maybe something subconscious or whatever it may be. There's a part of me that knows it's not sustainable, but until the thing comes along that kind of just lights that little fire in you or flicks the switch in the, the lights go on in the room that's just had furniture all over that you've been banging your knees into your whole, you know, yes. most of our life. You don't know. Maybe you don't know because I can't say that I kind of had this knowingness. I just did things. I'm extremely, I'm, I'm very spontaneous. I still am spontaneous. And I also, also think that maybe even the reason why some people who do achieve things in a more demanding way often gravitate to something like this and when they start, they don't stop because they like doing things well. Yeah. So if they're extreme before they'll turn around and adopt a new technique in their life and they won't stop because they just do, that's the way they go about it. So back to the question, you know, was there a moment it would be disingenuous for me to say so. I just can now see 10 years later that I was researching and looking in all the wrong places. And, and that's often enough that we might even see other people in our lives who we would like to think, geez, wouldn't it be great if they meditate? Yeah. And, of course, we may even wish to turn around to someone and say, hey, what have you thought about? But, of course, if they're not prepared to listen, it's advice that's never welcome anyway. We know that. So they're going to crucify us. A friend of mine who's extremely anxious and who should be the person that needs meditation, yeah. he says he doesn't have time. <laughs> and But he still fits a lot of other things into his day. And like you said, if you're not ready for something, you can't push someone in that direction because he's tried it a couple of times. It hasn't worked for him, but... Maybe he will find it one day, maybe he won't. Who knows? It's also what's the right technique. I tried a lot of different stuff. Yes. I tried a lot of different things. And what I found, what I now see, and I say this often, if people, someone rang me this morning and they've heard about they want to come and learn to do a meditation, you know, they want to learn to meditate and they like, look, I've tried different stuff. And I break it down pretty quickly. I say, well, look, probably a lot of the things you've been trying were historically or by tradition from monastic lifestyles, okay? So by tradition, it meant that you would be in a lovely, quiet place. You know, you're in the monastery up on the mountain. People are bringing you what you need. There's a whole bunch of things about monastic techniques that are fantastic. But if you come from, if you're a householder, 
try adopting a monastic technique as a householder, which is that you run around and you might have fam and you've got demands and these types of things. And, and you're a modern-day householder. A lot of the monastic stuff that we see that's essentially derivational gets sort of gets chopped and changed to suit this busy lifestyle. Yes. And it's very hard, very hard to maintain. I've tried everything. But I, don't, I love a passionate, but, I, but, you know, you can only go away for 10 days so often. Well, that's it. And doing an hour of Kriya Yoga is a lot of your day if you need to do it twice a day, right? And they're amazing techniques. But so sometimes it's about the right technique. When I realised that Vedic meditation was for a householder, I could do it 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon when I picked the kids up from school or outside a cafe, it just all of a sudden yes. I was kind of getting it done. And that was the first bit for me. I was like, this is practical. And don't you think there's something also in being taught how to meditate? So the way that I first learned, I mean, I've studied Vedic meditation. I love that. But I also have studied other forms of meditation, but have actually been taught them. So even if it's like I started off with a book, but then the book was kind of guided and this and that, it was mm. so well explained and then went to a mm. retreat by that person and went even deeper. So... I think sometimes before I started doing that, I just would listen. I would Google, maybe I'd go on the Calm app. I mean, all the apps are amazing, but I think having that basis of knowing how to do it through someone else just makes a lot of difference. And then it sets you up and you can go do any meditation because you have the fundamentals. Yeah, you're spot on. And correct, you know, good technique, good teacher, tick a few of those boxes, taking the time to enjoy a course, not just maybe turn up to something for 20 minutes, which is yes. an app and the apps are good and I'm involved with one myself. They all have their place, but that's a little bit of top of the funnel, right? It kind of gets you started and you read something and you listen to a podcast and you do a guided meditation. But at some point, the idea that you can, you know, have an experience with a teacher, you know, who you're prepared to actually receive knowledge from, you yes. know, that's another thing. There's a little bit of that, okay, Here's a person who has knowledge to impart and I'm prepared, I'm prepared to, I'll say the word metaphorically, but sit at their feet for a moment yes. and receive something. And that shows a little element of devotion to this bigger self part of ours, whatever it might be. And then, as you say, with that instruction, we gain confidence that we can meditate regularly. And so I agree with that, that there's a lot to be said that, that, that learning a technique, one that is steeped in some element of tradition or whatever it might be from a experienced teacher is very important, very important. I wouldn't say it's everything, but it's very important. Yeah. And what was it that drew you to the Vedic meditation? What about that practice? Obviously, you mentioned it's 20 minutes mm. in the morning and at night, but what was it mm. about that that stood out so much and helped you so much? Yeah. I noticed I changed pretty quickly, having done so many other things for such a long period of time. Um and having done, you know, if I did Bikram Yoga, I wouldn't just do Bikram Yoga. I would do 60 days straight of Bikram Yoga. Like, so I did everything really. <laughs> I was like, that's it. And I, anyway, it was just, it was all up and down. So when it came to this relatively, you know, innocent, um, simple technique, I was like, okay, well, I'm just sitting here with my eyes closed for 20 minutes twice a day. And I think a mantra. And, you know, as far as I know, my mind is resting. I'm releasing some stress. And, and it was just, it, it was this something so simple that didn't really require a lot of effort, like so many other things I'd done, I didn't need to go anywhere. And pretty quickly, um, you know, as the analogies go, and there are plenty of them, I could feel, you know, I knew that I was coming back in that conscious cinema. Yes. But a key thing was that within a few months, and I say this often, particularly meditation courses, and a lot of people I teach, I guess, have got some of the past experiences that I've had around you know, alcohol, all of that sort of stuff. But I would, we lived at a place, we lived at a place called Palm Beach and I would drive from my office, which is close to here, and I'd sort of pull in at whatever time it was and there was a bottle shop in Palm Beach and I'd pull in and I was kind of on, I was literally like a robot. I'd walk in, I'd say hello to the woman there, walk over, bottle of wine, not even thinking. I used to joke that I didn't tap my card because we didn't have tap back then. It was like whatever I did give us some cash, walk back in, walk into the house and it was all not whatever. And I'd walk over and I'd go over with a bottle of wine and pour a glass of wine and sit down and and then I'd sort of 
I was like, okay, and that was my little way to come back in my conscious cinema and take a break and the kids would be there and oh, how was everybody, right? Yeah. And it, was, and it wasn't that that was just my thing. And I remember about three months into meditating, Heidi said to me, she said, do you realise you haven't had a glass of wine for the last four or five days? Wow. Didn't even know. Hadn't even thought about it. By meditating regularly and releasing stress and those types of things and offsetting the impact of the stress chemicals with the bliss set, as we say, which is endorphins and serotonin, I was just enjoying my, you know, my nervous system was starting to come back in a place in this little movie of ours where I wasn't needing to have a glass of wine just to kind of get back from that mm. front row of my movie to come and enjoy that first hour or two evening with my family and children. I was just... I would, my conscious state was changing and I didn't really know, but all of a sudden there was this very direct real world, hey, someone else just went, oh, I'm, he, like, he's going to work it out in a minute. <laughs> he's going to say something. And that was just a, I was like, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it. And whatever reason, the way that I was driving home that time, it may have, I just never thought about it even, I just didn't pull in or the phone rang or something went yes. on. Yes. And it was really quick. It was in within a few months that, I thought, oh, hang on, this is just, uh, this is a relationship or a habit of mine that in past I'd previously tried to change in a very, you know, it's like, right, dry this, dry that, go away. It was just effort. Mm. And I was never a crazy drinker. My dad died essentially from complications from alcoholism at the age of 67 after I learned to meditate. But I knew, I'd like at that point, he was really in a very, very bad place. So I knew that there was a possible slippery slope there. But that was it, Sarah. Within three months, all of a sudden, this one thing that I'd found hard just to relinquish had just essentially gone. And I've had very little, pretty much very little ever since. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, I've never been a big drinker myself. I'll have a drink here and there, but never extreme. But my thing was, especially with meditation, I like to do it in the mornings. Mm. If I'm getting up early, I do not want to feel, even having one drink during the week, I do not want to feel slightly lightheaded or a little bit blurry or something. I I want to be at my optimum. And I remember a friend of mine at work said when we were in lockdowns in Melbourne last year, he was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to go have dry July or something like that. And like you, I didn't even think about it, but I was like, I have not had one drink for three months. We've been in lockdown and my whole mm. reasoning as well as if if you're going through a hard time, which, you know, when you're in lockdown, I don't think many people are rejoicing. Why would you have something that makes you feel worse? Mm. So, you, yeah, you might feel happy for the mo- couple of hours you're having it, but then it's a known fact that it's a depressant alcohol and yes. the next day you feel you feel awful. And so I think when there's anything slightly in my life that isn't 100% or I need to really focus on things, I have no desire to drink at all. Mm. And I, I really believe that this lifestyle of meditating and being consciously aware of everything around you leads you to do that. Well, and, and if we just talk kind of not to get literal or specific about it, but if you think about and you know, the analogy that we might use, which is life's a movie, it's the $300 million blockbuster, fantastic. Yes. But if you're in the front row of that conscious cinema or your face is up against the screen, your entire experience is just distorted colour, overwhelming noise, and your body's in constant state of fight or flight because you've got no capacity to do anything else but have a nervous system that is just running red hot. This is It's just a stress-based experience. So your front row conscious cinema, people could tap you on the shoulder all day and say, come on, let me meditate. You're going to turn around and tell them where to go. Mostly everyone in your movie theatre annoys you and you don't have time for, you know, and it's the real very, very stressful. And, and if that's not, uh, if you don't do something about that, stress turns into inflammation and at some point you're, you're either leaving your, you're leaving your movie because, you know, movie's over or someone's tapping on the shoulder and so listen, we've got to come and stick something into you or cut something out, right? We know all these things yes. go on. So, so at that point, a capacity for any space between decision-making is evaporates. So when you're there, you will do anything you, you can to feel better. So it's have nicotine, have alcohol, have anything, because it gives you a momentary reprieve from, from this overwhelm. It, it's completely overwhelming, that experience. Yes. So we have no capacity to even know it is base state consciousness. You're awake just, right? And if you're asleep, you're either unconscious, passed out sleep, which is no good either. 
or in actual fact, your organs are running so much stress that you're awake from one o'clock to five o'clock in the morning and you're having seven o'clock. So messy, base state, awake state consciousness, not much going on. So, you know, we, we have no capacity to think, oh, this glass of wine is going to be good now, not so good tomorrow morning mm. because, of course, the impact of it means you're straight back in the front row of the conscious cinema the next day and you need to repeat the cycle just to get a reprieve. Once, So that's just doing research. How long do you want to do the research? You can research it all of the life and then it's when you get to the end of that life, it's like, sorry, you're out. And it go, you know, like we can research yes. this for lifetimes. You know, this is familial trauma. It comes down the line. We go into all sorts of conversations about that. Why do we keep doing research? There's pain and people ultimately address that on the the level that it exists we know doesn't work. So, so whatever point that is that people come along to something that gives them that, that idea that's like, oh, hang on. I'm now having an experience of a broader state of consciousness, whatever that might be. I don't really need to know all that. But in actual fact, we're just remembering really what our true selves are. It's not something new. Mm. An experience of this part of us that is deeper, maybe we call it the pure conscious state or we call it our broad conscious self or the big self. There's a, there's a lot of names. But the idea that, that it's something new is not correct. It is just a remembering of who we truly are. And when that happens in the morning and then in the afternoon for a few days after meditation course and then it's a week and then it's a month and then it's two and then it's three, well, there are things going on chemically which is helping mm. us come back in the conscious cinema. We're resting better, beautiful, so we're just not getting through the day and yawning and getting to a party and you just give me a glass of personality just to get through the, you know, I'm just giving some of these ideas. But because we're feeling better, then we're not gravitating towards foods that are so poor for us. So everything's going to change. All of our senses are going to start to change. Our relationship with this entire experience will start to shift to a place where we're in a more cohesive relationship with our environment. And so at that point, the beautiful thing about that is that we just keep ticking away mm. and keep at it, then the whole thing starts to take care of itself. Yes. And so this beautiful little 20, whatever it is, whether it's 20 minutes or an hour in the morning, it doesn't really matter, whether it's this little experience that is simple, innocent, not a lot going on as far as you can tell, the outward experience becomes brushstrokes. And these two little 20-minute out of 72-minute, you know, sort of 72 slots in a day, all of a sudden in three months, you're like, wow, and then over time you can't quite believe as we were sharing before we started chatting here, it's that you can't quite imagine how it was that, that, that really life was even the way it was before. Absolutely. You start to walk down this path. And then you start to think, oh, I wish I'd done it when I was 20. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's not it either because all of that research is the reason why we get yes. to tell a story. It's only the reason I get to talk to you, right? If I'd been meditating since I was 18, like, oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> I feel like having those little wounds or those dark nights of the soul, oh, yeah. they, they lead mm. you to where you are now. I mean, a question, I don't ask it so, mo- so much anymore, but a question I used to ask people on the podcast was, do you regret any, anything that you've ever done? And most people would say no. Because mm. everything in life, if you are a slightly spiritual person, you realise that mm. every part of your life led you to where you are now. If you change mm-hmm. that, your life would be yeah. so different. And especially if you've come on a path that is meditating and, and being very conscious, then you're grateful. You're grateful to what's led you led you here. Yep. And you've got confidence in your journey. Yes. And this is the one thing we've got to remember is that, is that if you can turn around and you've taken each step of the way based on your own, you know, then – then you've got real a deep underlying belief about where you've arrived. Absolutely. So, so often we could turn around and say to someone, you should come and do this. You know, we prop them up and you fund someone and you go, come and do this course and do that and do this and do that. And at some point, if they feel that they haven't owned every step in the journey, there will be resentment there. Yes. Right? There's the loving control, like you do this, you do that. And everyone's like, oh, I think I've everything's better. But there's a part of them that knows that maybe they just didn't do it themselves. Yeah. And so – we actually at that point start to get into that whole space of like, I've kind of decided that what they need, I think they need that. 
And that gets into a very tricky place down the line when all of a sudden someone turns around and goes, well, you know what, whatever they would say, you know, I resent the fact that, that I'm here but my but the ground doesn't feel that stable under my feet. Why is that? Well, they start to question, was it them or was it someone else yes. or was it everyone else trying to fund behaviour, right? And that's interventions. It goes on and on and on. So grateful is one thing but we also need to turn around and feel that there's a real trust in the process. Mm. And then you feel okay about when someone comes to you and says, oh, listen, what's the, what's the path look like? You kind of feel like you've, you've trodden that as opposed to feeling like you might have cut a few corners. Yes. And I think there's something you said earlier which is really quite profound, and I've had it a lot in meditation, is that you go back to what you already knew. So when I find that when I have when I started meditation and I started to really like it because like you, I started doing meditation and I didn't enjoy it because I just didn't hit the right thing for me. And then I found ones that were, it was coming back to that saying of, I felt like I was home. And I truly believe, and from people I've spoken to, when we come here, the soul knows, the soul knows, it remembers. We get put in a body and that's the awkward part the body can be insecure and all that kind of stuff. But when you go back to the innate knowing that your soul has learnt for lifetimes, it's this feeling of I'm home. I'm home and I, I know it. And it's so it's a hard feeling to explain when you haven't been there. But when you get there, you just know that maybe it's within a meditation. I know that I do them and there is I get feelings of going this is one of the most blissful places I have ever been in my life and I don't want to lose this feeling. And, you know, a lot of the time then you do carry it in your life and see things around you start changing. And we were talking about this before we started recording today, Mm. but I said to you, I like having a lot of different meditation teachers on because I don't think people realise how much meditation can change their lives. And you and I both have stories of, being in our 20s and teenage years where maybe we were we were unhappy with where our life was but materialistically we had everything that we wanted why were we so unhappy but for different reasons we were and then we came into finding something that was right for us and for me it was also doing a specific different form of meditation and then that led me into a spiraling into doing a heap of other work that has changed my life and so i think to anyone listening, it is, if you've ever thought about doing meditation but you're unsure, try Vedic meditation to start off with and, and see how you go. Try and find a teacher. I mean, you can look for yourself, Nico Plowman. There's plenty of amazing teachers, but it is it, it can be absolutely transformational. And you know what? If you do it and you don't like it, then at least you tried. Yeah, I mean, nothing ventured, nothing gained. What have you got to lose? I mean, there's a million things you can, you know, we can say yeah. to people, can't we? And, and you know, just the fact that someone, and, you know, you could say to the listeners, the fact that there will be people, I presume, who would see the meditation teacher and go, I'm not listening to that podcast. But the person who's listening, even anyone who's listening now, their conscious state has actually meant that there's something, there's information they were prepared to receive. They've been doing research. They're hearing this conversation with you and I. And there's something, just the fact that they're listening to this, people who are not ready wouldn't even actually, they would scroll past it. Yes, that's so true. Then you learn to meditate and all of a sudden you feel like you're listening to podcasts and documentaries and you can't, you know what it's... It's like when you become a pea plater and then everyone on the road (laughs) is a pea plater. (laughs) It's a pea plater. (laughs) Exactly the same. And that's what happens with this, right? And I think regardless of whether it's Vedic or, you know, Buddhism-based techniques or some of the apps, the courses, there's so much there. And so people will go on that little journey and inevitably it's that the inevitable journey through that little funnel is that read a book. I mean, the first book I ever read was Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. I was 30, whatever it was. Did you enjoy that book when you read it? Yeah. yeah. I actually wasn't ready for it. And I remember thinking, oh, it's bo- this is boring. <laughs> and it, it's yeah. one of the most yeah. profound, amazing books I've read it since. Yeah. And it's really touched yeah. me. But yeah. I wasn't ready for it when I first listened. And it just wasn't for me. Mm. 
I think that was it. Nothing really came about it. It wasn't, probably wasn't for another 10 years that there's a book called Autobiography of yes. the Yogi, yes. um, which, of course, you know, everyone's read. And I, I lived in Hong Kong and New York in my 20s. So talk about, you know, talk about lifestyle yeah. and late nights. But there was a wonderful guy there called Andrew who he, I remember, family friend or something, I can't remember, he gave me this book and he wrote in it. So this was 1996, seven. And I and I had that, and, and I would have tried to read the first two pages of that book for years. I kid you not, I just and for whatever reason, it just never left my side. And for whatever reason, it would be beside my bed or in a, you know, in a box or in a thing. And I, I lived in Melbourne for a couple of years, lived everywhere. And then I learned to meditate, and I ended up going to India. Maybe this is I was thirty, I can't think thirty. Maybe six, seven years ago. And I had, and I still had that book with me nearly 10 years later, and it still had Dear Nico, Welcome to Hong Kong or something. I hope you'll enjoy this as much as I did. You know, love Andrew. And it was, I don't know what it was, but I was in Rishikesh and I was by the Ganges and I was maybe seven or eight months into this journey and I didn't put the book down. It just, it, I just literally devoured the whole thing and it mm. was, there was no, whereas before I felt like I was kind of grinding teeth the whole way just through the first three pages. But it was because my conscious state, there was no, it was like pouring water onto concrete up yes. until that moment. Yeah. At that point, conscious state expands. We have capacity to receive knowledge. We're back in the conscious cinema and it was just pouring water onto the sofa. It just completely changed. And I wasn't, there was no way any time before that that I think, but it was just incredible that the book just was there the whole time. What have you seen in yourself, obviously, besides not drinking as much, what have you seen in your eyes open life that doing Vedic meditation has changed? Ten years ago, you know, I was chronic pain. I would travel around the world all the time and I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't be in a hotel that didn't have a bath in it because I couldn't get up in the morning without being in a hot bath. I was medicated because of my back. I literally felt at the age of 38 that I was... I always used to say, I don't think I'll be able to walk when I'm 50. And I'd had, I'd had injuries, sports injuries, but actually my lifestyle had had a huge impact on that part of my body. I'm talking kidney, liver, all that sort of stuff. I'm now, I'm 50 in six months and I've probably not been physically as strong as this since I was 20 years old. It's just, I've got teenage daughters. I've also got a little two-year-old. So, you know, I'm putting that to the test oh, as wow. a 49-year-old man just in terms of my <laughs> energy levels and all those types of things. And I'll, I don't know if I'm, let's be, you know, like I can be as open as possible. That's a big audience. But, you know, at 38, I kind of felt like I'd done it all, you know. And, and of course, at 49, I feel like I haven't even started. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, I was like, no, everybody done this, done that, travelled, done the whole thing, tick the boxes, what else is there? And And that, can I tell you, is a depressing thought as well. To think that well, at that, 38, 39, I've done everything and I'm not even halfway well, through just, my life. Well, and, I, and I just was, I was, um, I was in front row conscious cinema. Yeah. My physiology my, and the chemistry of my nervous system was just, it was, oh, well, let's just trudge along. Yeah. Now I just, you know, I don't have enough, you know, there's just not enough time in the day. There's, it, I mean, it's pure and utter enjoyment and wonder of just all the things that pop up out of nowhere because I have no, there's no, there's there's enough plans in place to, to provide structure for children and the rest is like, well, what's coming? So it's just beautiful and it's liberating. And I was like an old man when I was 38. <laughs> now I'm like a 15-year-old kid and I'm 49. Yes. But it's also the idea of running your own race and you said the Mm -hmm. thing about time. I mean, realistically, time is a humanly concept only. Total. And we all have our own stories. They say if you're in a running race and you kept looking behind you or to the side, you'd slow down. It's about Mm. what your journey is and how you can make yourself the best person possible. And you mentioned it before if you stuff up in this slice, you're only going to come back again and have to learn the whole thing over again. That's it. In a different way. So, I mean, how can you better yourself in this life that you then, again, come to the next life and and live Mm. an even Mm. greater life? So I always say my life here is between me 
not sounding religious or esoterical, but my life here is mm. between me and God. It's not between yep. anyone else. It doesn't matter what all the other podcasters are doing and you probably think mm-hmm. the same about the meditation teachers. It's how I can use this experience to help other people and help them on their journeys as well as developing myself and being the best human that I can. Yep. So change is the only thing going on. We know that. Yeah. Evolution is then ultimately the only thing going on. So really we've come to evolve and, and we arrive as we have with whatever it is that we bring into this body in this life and then it's just so well really the the fundamental underlying directive from nature god if is to evolve and so it's like well okay if that's it to what level can i engage with that process and by the way we're going to evolve even if we end up being front row conscious in yes, dying exactly. from alcoholism because death is ultimate ultimate transcendence and ultimate neck you know that's it it's fine it's like and that's the big question. It's like, well, if we actually, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about what body death means and what it means to people and all this sort of thing. But fundamentally, where we're at, and I think it plays out broadly speaking, is to say is that, is that what we appear to think to be a destructive event is, of course, maybe the most, libera- mm. most, the most liberating experience we go through, which is rebirth is on the other side. Anyway. But it's true, sir. It's to say, well, once we understand... And we can say what a relationship with God is, or in actual fact, just the idea that everybody is God. There's only one into the whole thing, and it is our God-like nature that we rediscover. And that doesn't need to be a religious conversation. Anything, it's just God yeah. being who we truly are. God is in every single one of us. Recognising God in other and in someone else, which means that the mistake being that we're all separate, then if that becomes what's fulfills us then we get to experience bliss and the word bliss gets thrown around but it's actually a perfectly appropriate word we say charm a lot as well which is seek charm people go charming such an uncool word but i use it all the time because it just sums things up so well but from the the Upanishads, and it says you know we come from you know we come into bliss, we are sustained by bliss and we leave into bliss, you know, mm. ultimate or more. And, and it's just understanding that bliss exists through that entire cycle. You said the word and it was I, I picked up on that because even some people, we, some people may listen to this or scoff at the idea that there is capacity to experience bliss all the time. And by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't turn around and sometimes crack the, you know, what with our 16-year-old daughter, right? <laughs> Because they're on their phone too much. We're not. We're not in that whole yes. purist game, right? We're not getting dogmatic. We're like, okay, well, if it's appropriate that I get angry, let's get angry. Let's just walk around and go, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, Kumba. No, no, that's not appropriate either. But if it's required for a moment, it's in our recovery that we turn and go, okay, well, I got a bit angry then, but it's gone. Yes. And now I'm still back into to in you know into somewhat moving through this life as progressively and as as evolutionary way as possible, that's ultimately all we're here to do. And so I think what, and I've thought about, you know, I've thought about talking to you and is that if we actually don't try and create so many structures around what it means to to live that that big life, in actual fact, if we rediscover our conscious, pure, conscious, big self and do it consistently, that just kind of takes care of itself and we can just sit back and kind of enjoy the ride. I think being consciously aware is one of the key things, just being consciously aware and like you use the example of blowing up at a 16-year-old daughter Mm. but then also Mm. that night thinking, how can I do better tomorrow? Knowing straight away that or at the time that wasn't the right thing to do and mm. not doing it again or somehow mm. changing your actions. Like, you know, even the other day, I hate gossip. I think it's just one of the, yeah. it's one of the most destructive things that you can do. And it, why, why do we need it? There's so much to talk mm-hmm. about in this world. Anyway, I noticed myself, a friend was talking to me and I noticed that I asked a question that just wasn't my type of question I would ever ask someone. And I, as mm. soon as I did it, I thought, I don't even care for the answer and I wish I had never even asked that question because it just made me feel gross. But I'm so consciously aware of the words that come out of my mouth, the energy that I bring to a person 
that that has helped me move through life. And I think if everyone can be consciously aware of their actions, that is the starting point to making and creating your own life of greatness. Yep. And once again, it depends on where you are in relation to your external experience that you're going to even have the momentary thought of like, oh, I'm be really careful because, and there are whole bodies of knowledge around sound, right? And particularly the words, you know, once we, you know, we can think things and that's okay, but once we actually voice them, they they start to take shape in nature. That's why mantras and those types of things, you know, repeated mantras essentially invoke the laws of nature. So as you say, when we turn around and say things, there's a lot more weight to that. Mm. And so you, but you have the capacity to say, going, oh, okay, well, that came out. And like, all right, well, all fine. But it's only because you are where you are that you are able to see information approaching, mostly let it go, but also then respond appropriately most of the time, all right? And, of course, front row, you don't get any chance for that. You're just going to turn around and it's you've just got no capacity for that. So you buy yourself that appropriate amount of space to respond appropriately and meet the demands of whatever that whatever that demand is in that moment. And there's always the joke people say you think you're enlightened, spend yeah. you know two days with your family over Christmas. You know, like Ram Dass's quote. Yeah, and you think you are until you're a 16 year old. Just you know, and you're like. Oh. And and that's fine. And there's of course you know Guru sixteen year old right. We have we learn from yes. we learn from our we learn from our children enormously. And as someone who's essentially now having children at a second run at it, the difference is incredible in terms yeah. of parenting. Oh, it's amazing. And to have to be a father this side of that time when I learned to meditate. I mean, it's a completely, it's a completely different experience. You brought up the mantras. I think that's really fascinating. What do the mantras do and why is it so important to be saying them? What do they mean? What kind of effect do they have when expressed? Well, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of different mantras. I mean, in Vedic meditation, we think one which is called a bija mantra. So it's a seed mantra and it's just a very innocent sound. It has no meaning to it. We think it really gently and our mind is charmed by it, but we don't say it out loud. We just think it. Okay, and it helps the mind to rest. You can chant the Gantri Mantra. I mean, there's probably God knows how many versions of Gantri Mantra on Spotify, right? I think Debbie Pramals. And then if you were, when you're in Rishikesh and you do certain ceremonies and yagyas, there are certain mantras that we would say that invoke certain aspects of nature to enhance what we may wish to receive, okay? And so... It's repetition around essentially what we would consider to be the dynamics that sound play in nature that we can replicate to then awaken those things that are going on inside our natural experience. So Om Shiva Nama Om, and you would just repeat it and repeat it. And if anyone's done Yogi in India listening to this, I know what I'm talking about because you repeat it for a long time. Yeah. And your knees are sore and you're sitting on the by the bank of the Ganges thinking, oh, this is this is discipline. But in answer to your question, I would not say that I, I wouldn't profess to know as much as a pundit by the banks of the Ganges. I've certainly participated in a lot of those types of things in India. And it's just to say that we can, I guess there's a devotional component or even one of discipline that says through invoking those sounds, we can garnish support for what we may, for a life that we may wish to lead. Because you know they say Om is the universal sound yes. and there's a sound that that ultimately when creation, you know, like at the moment of creation, there's the fundamental underlying sound. And you know, there's a whole lot of things that go on with that. And then there's a sound called Ritam, which we talk about regular meditators will start to say that they can hear a little ringing in their sound. They don't have titness. They actually just are hearing the moment where the absolute moves into the relative, just I'm just playing around with some concepts here, but there's a thing called ritam, which people are, so there's different sounds that exist in nature. Now, if we are, if you think about it, front row conscious cinema, you're in a very basic awake state, your senses are dulled, okay? So sugar, you hear the idea that in actual fact, if you're front row conscious cinema, all you're going to do is gossip, right? Mm. Because, and all you're going to do is listen and watch 
repetitive, not very inspiring things on Netflix and you're going to have, you'll be walking back up the fridge and you're sitting there. So you think about your whole experience is probably completely external and that's all that's interesting to you, all right? Come back conscious, but, you know, you're coming back, you're coming back, you're becoming more conscious, things are starting to change. What do I see? What do I choose to be charmed by that I look at? Well, it's not going to be the completely mindless destruction on whatever it is. What do I choose to hear? You're not going to sit around a table and gossip about anyone. No interest, completely uncharming, and, in fact, it becomes quite, you become quite opposed to it. Isn't it funny where you start noticing when everyone else does it or uh, when people do and it's so off-putting? It's it's my number one thing where I think... Yeah. that's cruel or mean or why do you choose to talk like that? It's let, Let's talk about something else. Well, that's just it because it's really only all and also once once we're there, if we're gossiping, we're really just commenting. We're running commentary on things about ourselves that are actually being triggered by other people's yes, behaviour. It exactly. goes on and on because it's all separation. So I said that person to that, but in actual fact these three things are pointing back at you. There's all that stuff. But once we, if we can leave all that aside, the move away from those things, the expansion of a conscious experience means that what everything that we that we start to see, taste, touch, smell, feel, everything that that will be really reflective of our conscious state. It will be charming. It will be high grade. It will be, wow, this documentary is incredible when of course six months before you were just walking dead for a week straight. Okay. All of a sudden it's like, oh well, sugar. Oh geez, it's strong because your nervous system's turning around going, don't don't, don't need that anymore. And then this becomes the challenging part to this is like all of a sudden you will start to think that you don't want to go and have that lunch with yes, those people. It does. It does. And, and it's, that's, t- and that, that's and that, hard. And that's change. It's yeah. change. But it, it, like I often talk about this with friends where people mm. message or email me and they say, I've come into this sort of work, I'm meditating, I'm really becoming very aware of my surroundings, but now I realise I don't like my husband or my friends, mm. and mm. I realise that I've really, I've. what do I do? And you see, like, yeah. they'll change jobs and they might get divorced mm-hmm. or their friends start changing. But at the same time, allowing that to happen and being okay with it, because I think a lot of the time when we, when we are shifting, we're still holding on to the known because the known yep. is that safe. You know, safe. Even if it's yep. not comfortable, it's still safe. It's familiar. So it's about... Mm evolving and during that process letting go of those things that no longer serve you. That's exactly it. Now, the more that the more that we're meditating, the more foundation and trust we're building, in which case this individual expression of ourselves is actually getting this lovely big base on it. And so it has capacity to lean in discomfort. It's very natural. If you're leaning in discomfort and you've got no base, you fall over. You won't do it gets too, but ultimately too scary. If you've got a much broader foundation and there's that broad conscious experience and you're, starting, you're now starting to know that you're not just this eyes open relative experience, but you're a much broader experience, you'll start to kind of test out those, you know, those areas of discomfort and you'll be like, oh, I can, I, can, I can move in this direction and it's all okay. Yeah. Because your physiology is processing a lot of the discomfort, which is stress and all those types of things. You're not as tired, you're less fatigued, you've got more energy to try new things out. You've got more capacity to hold with discomfort, which is where if you do start moving and changing, the resistance from other people, family, friends, all that sort of stuff, that can build to a crescendo. It does. But if you're very – it does. It does. It, does. it always does. But if you, It does. And it can be a really challenging time. But fundamentally – if we think about change is the only thing taking place, evolution is the only directive, that it's really just saying the only thing going on is nothing's ending but relationships have to change. Yeah. Your relationship with everything that you've built so far, which was based on what your parents thought and what your peer group said, and you kind of turned around it somewhere around at some age, most people, you dimmed your light, you decided to play ball, kind of settled back into whatever it was that you thought everyone expected of you and this was just ego survival mode and at some point you just turn around you've done the research there's a rediscovery and it's like oh hang on i'm going to i'm going to this this is i'm going to break this all up yes right now in doing that though you are challenging every relationship you've built over a very long period of time and so when that happens if you know on the basis that that people that have very close relationships with you see that 
if they see that change happening, a deep part of them knows that fundamentally if they want to stay in relation of some description, proximity, duration, maybe that has to change, then they've got to change too and they'll dig their heels in and they, and, and they know the triggers, they know, they know exactly where to dig you in the ribs to make you come back to small self. Mm. And it is only our capacity and increasing knowingness for this deep foundation of broad conscious experience and a remembering of who we truly are that we will keep walking down that path because it becomes fundamental to how you live and how you feel and what your purpose is to keep going because you now know by that stage that this is this is the real truth yes. of who, who you were and how it was that you arrived. And so what 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 we sort of say in this value world is, you know, we are seeking charm fearlessly. There is nothing about a liberated life that we will start to be fearful of because it's like I'm, if you start worrying what everyone's going to think, you dim your light. Absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? It is getting to a place, I think, where you ultimately relinquish any expectation of outcome or what's possible. It is getting beyond that component of of the fear of that unknown and stepping into that to the point where you appreciate that we all have capacity to live a fearless life but ultimately to live an invincible life and to have a realisation of the invincible potential of the human condition and nature. Yes. And then going after that fearlessly. Nico Plowman, thank you for such a fascinating discussion today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. It has. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for time. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.